the unknown. Mystery. Space. Have fun. Adventure. Suspense. Fantasy. Nameless, unreasoning, unjustified terror. Welcome to journey number 178 of the Journey Into podcast, featuring The Monitor and the Merrimack by You Are There. I am your guide on this journey, Marshall Latham, coming to you from base camp in the Treasure Valley. It's great to be back here with another old-time radio show for you here as a journey on the podcast. Uh, it's been a long time, been a long, lonely, lonely time since I've done a You Are There episode. There was a time back, what was it, uh, seven, six or seven years ago, where I almost did an entire year's worth of You Are There episodes. I really enjoy these because it's a look back at history, and it's done in such a way that's uh, professional and creative and uses the news people of the day. Uh, CBS did this old time radio show called You Are There and they would do historical events as if it were they were reporting on a news story that was happening right then and there. But yet they were going back in history. And so in this case, we're going back to the Civil War of the United States and, you know, when it comes to historical stories, uh, wars tend to make for uh, good backgrounds of story. There's a lot of dramatic storytelling you can do. Now, this is actual events. This is actual history. But if you think about it, when people are interested in history, especially United States history, they, you know, you talk a lot about World War II. There was so much going on during World War II throughout the entire world. And then once the U.S. got involved, you know, we were in all areas of the world. And we were fighting against the Germans and the Japanese and all their different counterparts in different parts of the world. And so lots of World War II history um, events that you can talk about. The uh, beginning of the United States, you know, the Declaration of Independence, the Revolutionary War. There's lots of stories told about that. And of course, one of the most divisive uh, wars that we fought, we fought against ourselves, which was the American Civil War, where the Confederacy broke away from the Union after Abraham Lincoln took office. And it was all around slavery and the the rights of, of the Confederates to maintain their their status and uh but most of the stories you hear are about the you know the north versus the south families that are broken up brothers cousins that are on either side of the war fighting against each other 
and uh, you know, lots of love stories told about the, those kinds of things as well. But it really was a tumultuous time in American history. It really was something that lingers, still affects our current life as an American society. Um, there's still unresolved things from slavery and the South and racism and some of those things have not really been resolved. Now, all in all, yes, um, we are a United States and we all act together to support this nation, but there's still divisions and there's still things going on. Uh, but again, going back to historical events, I mean, there's people that recreate these battlefields. You have the Gettysburg, the fight, the, the battle at Gettysburg. You have all of the, the events that take place and you have reenactments of those things. You know, people go back and they wear Union Army uniforms or the Confederate uniforms and they, they enact battles with muskets and, and cannons and all these things. And there's a lot of rich history around this war. One of the things you don't hear a lot about is the Navy. And... I was very intrigued when I first heard about the Merrimack and the Monitor. And I think this does a great job of talking about that. So let's get into the story or into the, the old time radio show. I just have to hook up the old Wamperdime radio tuner here and get settled in. And we will be there back during the Civil War. Uh, so come with me. And let's journey into history. Well, a developing story right now at this hour, Coast Guard boats are still out on the Merrimack River searching for a missing six-year-old boy. But local crews have just wrapped up for the day. That child's family was in the water Last evening, when they got into trouble, the boy's mother died and he disappeared. WBC's Christina Hager's live force in Amesbury tonight. We don't officially know how many men served in the Confederate Navy because the records aren't all available, but we believe it to be a total of six to 7,000 men across four years. Because the Confederate Navy has no ships, they're gonna have to, what I like to say, duct tape a Navy together. Get ships any way that you can. Working with the monitor. You sent you to get me? Because the crisis is here? That is correct. I'm ready. This is Don Hollenbeck for CBS News in Washington. It will soon be dawn this morning of March 9th, 1862, off the Atlantic coast of Hampton Roads, Virginia. 150 miles southeast of the capital. The next few moments will see the return of daylight to that pivotal point in the North's naval blockade of the South. And according to all experienced federal observers here in Washington, the coming moments may also see the return to Hampton Roads of the Confederate ironclad Merrimack. If the Merrimack can break out into the open sea, round Old Point at the southernmost tip of Maryland, 
proceed northward to attack the northern ports on the Atlantic seaboard. The most northern blow have been struck. 1862, Washington, D.C. You are there. Washington, on the dawn of the day that will see the decisive naval battle between the North and the South, between the Federals and the Confederates. CBS takes you back 86 years to the surprise engagement that ushered in a new era of sea warfare. All things are as they were then, except for one thing. When CBS is there, you are there. You are there, produced and directed by Robert Louis Cheon, is based on authentic historical fact and quotation. And now, CBS News in Washington and John Hollenbeck. So heavy with foreboding and impending calamities. Here in Washington, there are grim faces at the White House, tight-lipped comment from officers at the Northern Department of the Navy. When reports first reached the Navy Department, stating that the Merrimack was venturing forth out of Norfolk to challenge the Federal fleet, there were expressions of amusement and cynicism. Northern Navy officers laughingly imagined the ironclad as a humpbacked turtle, grotesquely waddling her ineffective way through the rough waters. But then the Merrimack struck. Within a matter of hours, the northern sloop Cumberland was rammed and sunk. The 50-gun sailing frigate Congress was abandoned and on fire. And the 40-gun steam auxiliary frigate Minnesota was aground and helpless. At twilight, the Confederate ironclad retired toward Norfolk, leaving behind the question, what can be done to prevent the Merrimack from returning and destroying the entire northern fleet? That's the situation as we see it here in Washington this morning. However, CBS correspondent John Daly is now at Hampton Roads aboard the frigate Roanoke, the flagship of the Northern Naval Squadron. So for a report from the actual scene of the expected naval battle, we switch you to John Daly aboard the Roanoke. The Merrimack has not been sighted as yet. And here aboard the Roanoke, daylight, daylight rather, is beginning to streak the eastern sky, but the sea is still shrouded in a heavy, swirling mist. Somewhere out in that mist, about a mile to my right on the riprap, federal tugs are desperately trying to release the battered Minnesota from the shoals on which she grounded yesterday. Perhaps you can hear the tug whistles in the distance. Also to my right, hidden by the mists and the angry water of the roads, lie the hulks of the federal warships Congress and Cumberland, both of them sunk in yesterday's action. Right now, here on the Roanoke, every man jack is searching the curtain of mist that hangs over the sea, waiting and watching for the first sight of the Confederacy's juggernaut of destruction. The air is tense. The men seem calm and determined. There's no false optimism. The nearness of new fighting has produced a, a solemn, a quiet, well, almost a prayerful attitude among the officers and the crew. With me at our CBS microphone is Commander Prescott Singleton, one of the senior officers of the Roanoke. Commander Singleton... Do you think that the Merrimack is on her way to attack the fleet again, sir? Foregone conclusion. Well, what did you think of yesterday's engagement? Well fought, I should say. Well fought indeed. Well, do you happen to know who is in command of the Merrimack, sir? Yes. Uh, Captain is Franklin Buchanan. I'm told he holds the rank of Commodore in the Southern Navy. Oh. A good man. Knew him before the war. Knew him well. Uh, shipped together, the two of us. I see, sir. I, uh, I'm rather disappointed in him, I might say. Disappointed? In what way, sir? Well... It's difficult to put into words, but in the Navy, we have traditions, very high and proud traditions, I might say. I just cannot conceive of a good Navy man skulking behind iron plates. But 
Don't you consider the Merrimack to be a very ingenious ship of war, sir? Well, yes, but uh, it's uh, it's not the way to fight upon the sea. It, uh, it, it's unethical. Well, might I ask um, what you would think if you were given command of an ironclad? Oh, I'd resign my commission first. Well, then you feel, Commander Singleton, that the Merrimack is not a legitimate weapon of naval warfare? Absolutely not. The introduction of new and novel methods of warfare I must treat with repugnance. Men have been fighting on the high seas for centuries, according to certain basic laws of strategy. Nelson, John Paul Jones, Drake. In short, sir, the sea is no place for experimentation. But, sir, can anything prevent the Merrimack from further ravaging the northern fleet? We will stand against her. We will fight her bravely and gallantly. Count on that. Our hopes, sir, shall rest upon the good lord, good marksmanship, and good, solid New England oak. Thank you, Commander Singleton. The mist is still very heavy hanging over the water here, and there's still no sign of the Merrimack. So this is John Daly aboard the Roanoke, now back to CBS Washington. This is Don Hollenbeck. A moment ago, you heard Commander Singleton, one of the senior officers aboard the northern flagship Roanoke, say that he knew the name of the Confederate captain of the Merrimack, and that raises an interesting question. How much advanced information did the northern department of the Navy have on the Merrimack? Quincy Howe has just come from the Department of the Navy where he talked with northern officers. Quincy, was the North aware of the fact that the South was building an ironclad? Uh, yes, Don, they were. Uh, the Navy Department in Washington, through various secret agents, has known all along that the Merrimack, uh, the South now calls her the Virginia, was being rebuilt uh, as an ironclad. You say rebuilt. The Merrimack then isn't an original construction. No, it seems not, Don. The Merrimack uh, was a wooden ship in the American Navy undergoing repairs at Norfolk Harbor uh, when the fighting began. Uh, because the federal forces couldn't uh, tore off anywhere to safety, they scuttled her before they evacuated uh, the city of Roanoke. Then southern engineers came along, uh, raised up the burnt-out hulk, and converted uh, what used to be a graceful frigate into this present ugly, iron-coated monster of, of destruction. Well, then the North knew about the Merrimack in advance and didn't do anything to counter her because they discounted her power. Is that it? Yeah, that, that's about the size of it, uh, Don. Uh, now, now, in the considered opinion of every northern naval officer whom I've talked to, there's only just one thing that can stop the Merrimack, and well, that's a miracle. There's no defense against the ironclad. The way she could withstand the concentrated fire of even the most powerful batteries that the North has to offer on land or sea, well, that's, that's shown that she can defy every weapon that the federal forces now have at their command. Uh, then the Merrimack's iron plating permits her to get close enough to any opposing ship to drive home that ram of hers with deadly effect. Well, then, as it looks now, Quincy, nothing can stop the Merrimack. What then? Uh, the answer now just seems all too clear. Uh, the Confederacy will simply have broken the northern blockade. And just think what that means. Uh, up to now, the northern blockade of the southern ports, well, that's been the Union's most effective economic weapon against the Confederacy. The Merrimack, though, now threatens to destroy that weapon, and the result will be that cotton, cotton, the money crop of the South, will again start flowing across the sea, and in exchange, of course, the South will get cargo upon cargo of badly needed guns, ammunition, food, all the essentials of war. A victory by the Merrimack uh, would be likely to increase the war-making power of the Confederacy, oh, I guess maybe ten times over. Then there's this angle. England may decide to recognize the Confederate States of America as a sovereign nation and therefore entitled to all the international privileges of the belligerent. 
Another point, Quincy. What do you think this effect will be, the effect of the Merrimack? Now, what will it have on naval strategy in this country and around the world? Well, all I can say, Don, is everywhere I went, I heard people saying things like this. The era of the wooden ship is over. Every wooden war vessel now afloat, all the way from England's great ships of the line to the lowliest little corvette of the smallest nation. They've all become obsolete. Just in one day, we've witnessed a complete revolution in maritime warfare. No one Excuse is me, Quincy, I'm sorry. A message. We've just got a message from Douglas Edwards at Fortress Monroe overlooking Hampton Roads. He has with him the wife of a federal officer who's just come through the southern lines. So we take you now to Fortress Monroe and Douglas Edwards. I'm in the correspondence room at Fortress Monroe. The young woman with me is Mrs. Lucy Creighton. Where is your home, Mrs. Creighton? Providence. Will you speak a little louder, please? Providence, Rhode Island. Uh, Mrs. Creighton, I know you must be very tired. You've had a long and hard journey, haven't you? Yes, I have. I've just come through the lines on a safe conduct path. I understand. But will you tell us, please, what you were doing in the South? My husband was wounded and taken prisoner at Fort Donaldson in February. It was only a month after we were married. They arranged to let me go see him. Mrs. Creighton, you were in Norfolk, Virginia last night. Uh, That's southern territory. Can you tell us, please, how the people there received the news of the Merrimack's victory yesterday? Well, we were very happy. They were shouting, dancing in the street. They had a torchlight parade. I guess it must have been like that in every city of the South. Mrs. Creighton, would you say, then, that the people of the South feel that the Merrimack is going to bring them victory in the war? Oh, yes. They were all saying that after the Merrimack thinks our fleet is going to go north and bombard Philadelphia and New York. They were sure it would do that. And they were yelling and shouting that the war would soon be over. Go on, please. When the Confederate officer who accompanied me last night took me back to the northern lines... It was like riding through a carnival. When I reached the exchange point, the southern officer tipped his hat. He was very kind to me all the time, very nice. He tipped his hat and said that he was so glad the war would be over soon and we would be at peace again. There's no doubt, then, that the morale of the people of the Confederacy has been lifted tremendously by the events of the last 24 hours. Oh, I would say so, yes. All the time I was traveling in the South, I never saw anyone laugh or act like they were happy until last night in Norfolk when the news of the Merrimack came. This is Don Hollenbeck at CBS Washington. We've interrupted Doug Edwards at Fortress Monroe because the Merrimack has been sighted. The immediate target seems to be the frigate Minnesota. Ken Roberts is aboard that ship, so now to the Minnesota and Ken Roberts. The Merrimack is in sight. We can see the Merrimack. Just a few moments ago, the sun began to break through the overcast, and like a curtain rising on a stage, the mist lifted to reveal the squat and ugly form of the Merrimack, not more than a mile or two away, breasting the foam-capped water. She looks like a slanting black roof afloat in a flood. The officers here aboard the Minnesota estimate the top speed of the Merrimack to be only five knots, so it will be some time yet before the Confederate ironclad comes into cannon range. I've also learned that the Merrimack carries four guns on each slanting side and one pivot gun four and another aft, making a total of ten guns in all. The sides are sheathed in four inches of iron plate. All the Minnesota guns here are primed. The 
truest and supplemented by many survivors of the Cumberland and the Congress, and directly above us we can see the big land-based guns of Fortress Monroe, also waiting for the Merrimack to come into range. The uh, tugs are still pulling at the Minnesota, trying to get her free. The officers of the Minnesota and the tugs calling to one another as they cast lines, tighten and pull, then recast, tighten and pull again. Up on the bridge of the Minnesota, I can see the officers clustered together, watching the approach of the Merrimack. They're a grim, silent group. Now, as I look across the water, I can see Old Glory flying from the protruding mast of the Cumberland. Standing beside me is one of the survivors of that ill-fated ship, a young seaman taken aboard during the night after spending 14 hours clinging to a piece of wreckage. The Minnesota's commanding officer has given us permission to talk to him. What's your name, sailor? Charles Horman, seaman second class. What was it like yesterday, Charles? What was the feeling aboard the Cumberland when the Merrimack came up for the attack? Well, first off, we didn't think it was going to attack. We had our wash out on deck, and some of the boys were swabbing deck like as if nothing were going to happen. We didn't know. When, when did you clear for action? Well, it wasn't until almost she got into range. Then what happened, Charles? Well, first, I don't know, but first I think the Congress started firing, and... And then we saw she was coming our way, so we began. Who was coming our way? The Merrimack. So we began firing. Did the Merrimack answer with her gun? No, sir, she didn't. It, it was the craziest thing. Listen, it was crazy. She, she didn't fire, not until she was so close we could almost reach out and touch her. That's how close I think. And, and then she let go with her bow gun. The shot went right through us, right just fore and aft. Killed some of the boys, and those who were hurt started yelling and cutting. What happened then, Charles? Well, we fired everything we had out of then, everything, all the guns we had. And we could see our shells bouncing off the side, bouncing into the water. It was crazy, honest. And the Merrimack kept right on, coming closer and closer, and we couldn't even figure out what was happening. She just kept coming at it. And then it was like somebody or something had got under our ship and heaved us into the air. Into the air? Yeah. You couldn't see nothing, only hear wood breaking, and, and the other guys yelling, and we filled it over until the decks were awash. Go on, Charles. Well, when we righted, the Cumberland began to lift fast because our whole underbelly had been ripped by the ram of the Merrimack. Just a, a chunk chewed out, and the water poured in. That was on the starboard side below deck. After that, there wasn't anything to do but jump, so I jumped. Believe me, I, I didn't even think about it. When Lieutenant Morris, who was, who was deck officer, yelled for us to jump, I just jumped and prayed. When I got in the water, there was a bunch of spar floating nearby, and I got a hold of it, and that was how I managed to save my life. Well, it wasn't the guns of the Merrimack that did the big damage then. It was her ram. Ram. It, it was the ram. Thank you for talking with us, Charles Harmon. Now, here's another sailor from the Cumberland, but one whose experience was even more incredible, more dramatic. Your name, sailor? Kavanaugh. Jimmy Kavanaugh. Bedford Mass. Well, every man who witnessed yesterday's engagement, Jimmy, is talking about your heroic effort to force the Merrimack. Tell us about it. Well, look, I don't know. It wasn't anything. You were aboard the Cumberland. Uh, yes, sir. Both the That's right. Go ahead, Jimmy. Well, uh... After we caught the broadside of the Merrimack, she came in so close that an officer on the Merrimack opened a porthole and yelled out, Surrender, Morris, or I'll sink you. That's Lieutenant Morris, deck officer of the Cumberland. Yes, sir, that's right. And you know something? Here's something awful funny. It turns out that the officer on the Merrimack was a Lieutenant Jones who went to Annapolis without a Lieutenant Morris. Is that so? Yes, sir. Well, what did your Lieutenant Morris reply? Morris? <laughs> Morris yells back, Never, never, I'll think first. By this time, the Merrimack was under our deck. Actually, under the deck. So I jumped on it. I had two pistols stuck in my belt. I jumped on it. They killed so many of us, you see. My boys, they were. A hundred were dead, you see. And the others screaming and yelling. Well, I, I guess I lost my head, I guess. 
All I could think was that I wanted to get to that man that could get even, see? For my voice to get even. Yeah, go on, Jimmy. So, I didn't even think, I don't know. It happened like that, see? I don't know. I jumped over on the man that could try to climb her side. Get to the gun port. Uh, somewhere where I could see inside and let him have it with my gun. That's what I wanted to do, but it was so slippery. Like our greased forest. The iron was so slippery I couldn't get a foothold or nothing. Every time I climbed up a little, I'd fall back in the water. Then I'd try again and fall back again. All the time, the guns over my head were shooting, and the bang was making me dead, so... So I, I saw it was no use, see? And then... Well, by then, the Cumberland was rammed and sinking, so I dived back in the water and held on to some wreckage, and later they picked me up. That was a very brave thing you did, Jimmy. How did my kids they killed I, I, I wanted to do something. That's all I wanted to do, you see? I know your action will be well rewarded. If I could have gotten a toehold. You see, it was like grease. The, the sides were so slippery. I see. Thank you, Boston Sage, Jimmy Cavanaugh. And now I have another sailor, a man who was aboard the Congress, who can give us a first-hand account of what happened there. His name is Pete Finley from New York City. Yeah, I sure wish I was there again. What's your rating, Pete? Ah, rating? Me? Uh, no rating for me. I'm just a member of the Naval Brigade. Well, that's kind of like the militia, isn't it? Not regular Navy. Yeah, not regular Navy, that's right. Well, what were you doing aboard the Congress? You better ask out of Father Abraham. You mean President Lincoln? That's what I mean. It was him who put us aboard that leaky old tub. Were there many Naval Brigade men aboard your ship? Three companies. What about the regular crew? They've been discharged four or five days ago. They're enlisted. What's up? We were put aboard to make it look like the ship was manned, I suppose. There wasn't even a single trained gunner aboard. Can you imagine that? So when a Merrimack, she lets go of us, and we see the Cumberland going, so we run up the white flag. And you couldn't you... expect any different, now, could you? I know. We've not been trained for fighting, if you know what I mean. Well, when it comes time, the white flag has gone up the mast, and I says to myself, I says, Petey boy, send the tank for you, and over the side I go. Over the side? Yeah, you couldn't expect no different, now, could you expect different? Well, tell me, Pete, do you know when you'll get another ship? Me? Another ship? With that thing, that, that iron boiler out there still wide and wild, oh, no, sir, no part of the water for me, not for Petey Finley. The land for me, and I'll kiss it, so help me if I ever get these big feet to feel the land again, I'll... I'll... Yes, I'm sure you will, and thanks, Pete. Yeah, I'm glad you're sure, mister. Wish I was. Now, looking out to sea again, the Merrimack looms nearer, smoke belching from her chimney, an ugly, misshapen monster. This is CBS Washington. We take you now to Jackson Beck, somewhere in Hampton Roads. Come in, Jackson Beck. Well, sir, we hope the monitor is the answer to the Northern Prayers. 
The craft of unique design, the idea of John Erickson, the famous Swedish-American inventor. It's iron hulled, surmounted by an armored circular turret, nine feet high, 20 feet diameter, covered with eight folded layers of one-inch iron. The turret and the little pilot house that lays forward are the only deck structures, except for smokestacks and exhaust grates, which we remove before going into action. I see. Uh, what about your armament, Lieutenant Wharton, or is that restricted information? No, sir, it's no secret. We carry two 11-inch Dahlgren. Well, the reports we have of the Merrimack say she carries ten guns. Oh, that's true, but her guns are smaller and stationary. I see. Ours are fitted into a revolving turret. We can shoot in any direction without having to maneuver into a firing position. Well, then you think the monitor is an even match for the Merrimack, Lieutenant Wharton? Oh, I think we're more than an even match, and we stand ready to prove it. Uh, can you tell us just how the monitor came to be here in Hampton Roads right at this crucial moment? <laughs> I guess, guess a good part of that is luck. Uh-huh. Uh, we set out from Brooklyn three days ago. Our orders were for us to head for Hampton Roads at full steam. Last night, we anchored in the darkness off the Roanoke, and one of our officers, my second in command, Lieutenant Sam Green, went aboard the Roanoke for orders. No one knew him, and he received his orders from the Admiral in secret. Now, these orders were clear and simple to take up a position near the Minnesota and defend her from attack by the Merrimack. Well, we anchored in close under the Minnesota's lee side so that we were hidden from sight. Now that the Merrimack is coming in range, we're sailing out to carry out our orders to defend the Minnesota, and we're going to do just that. How many men? What's that? Merrimack has opened fire. Here, miss. Merrimack is right, sir. Take over the firing turret, Green. I'm going forward to the planet house. The Merrimack has opened fire. The first salvo hole missed us by some 20 yards, but the concussion of the shells is tossing the monitor around like a cork. Here in the turret, the gun crew is stripped to the waist. There isn't enough room for a man to stretch out his arms. It's hot in here, and it's going to get less hotter. The crew is getting ready to fire. I can see the Merrimack through a tiny slit in the metal turret. It is about 1,000 yards away. The snouts of her cannon are smoking from that first broadside, and the second one should be coming in. Where is The monitor has opened fire. We have opened fire. The blast is deafening. The heat. I can't think of it. We are being hit. No doubt you can hear that. But the shells of the Merrimack are bouncing hard. No more time. The monitor's eight-inch armor is holding. CBS in Washington, the noise of the firing aboard the monitor makes it impossible to hear Jackson Beck, but John Daly aboard the northern flagship Roanoke has an excellent view of the action in Hampton Roads, so we switch now to him. Come in, John Daly, aboard the flagship Roanoke. The battle between the monitor and the Merrimack has begun. The Merrimack towering high above the water, and the tiny monitor, David and Goliath, the two ironclad not more than a few hundred yards apart now, flinging tons of iron at each other's side. It's a fantastic sight to those of us who covered other naval engagements. No printed spars, no ripped wooden hulls. The Merrimack guns are firing at will, and they keep up a steady hammering barrage. The monitor fires one gun at a time at intervals. The very first blow that the Federal monitor struck sent the Merrimack reeling backwards, but just for a moment. She came right back in again, and now she's letting go with every piece that she has, and incredibly, that shot 
is just glancing off the rounded turret of the monitor without doing any perceptible damage, not a bit of it as far as we can see from here. The gallant little ship takes the full force of the shot without a tremor, without a sign of distress, and then she returns every salvo with a blast of her own. Her turret spins around as soon as one of her cannon is fired, and the second cannon is all loaded and ready to go. Right now, this fight has gotten so hot, the smoke is so thick, it's kind of hard to make out exactly what is going on, except that the two of them, the, the monitor and the Merrimack, are actually standing toe-to-toe and slugging it out just like two bare-handed prisoners in the middle of a ring. Great blast of sound. They're just firing their guns as fast as they can load them. The Merrimack has just pulled out from the cloud of smoke, and she's leaving the monitor. The Confederate ironclad is evidently going to try something. Here she's, she's going to try to attack the Minnesota, one of the hit federal ships. And here comes the monitor. The federal ironclad is sweeping in between the two of them, intercepting. She's forcing her ironclad in between the Confederate Merrimack and that wooden Minnesota. She's challenging the Merrimack. She's challenging her to come back and get combat once again. The Merrimack is forced to turn. She's lost her turn and is turning on the monitor, making full steam. The Confederate Merrimack looks like she's going to try to ram the Northern champion if she can. The two of them are almost deck to deck, but the monitor's sweeping aside. She's turning out of the path of the Merrimack. She's avoiding that ram, and as she turns, she keeps blasting away at the Southern Ironclad. That monitor's still in that fight. She's still in between the Merrimack and that Federal wooden ship to Minnesota. Once more, though, that Confederate Ironclad has been turned away from her objective. She's been turned away from the hidden sides of the Minnesota. And this time, the little old monitor seems determined to fight it out to the very finish. It's a terrific struggle, a battle of iron and steel. It's just blazing away. And the Merrimack is swinging around. Oh, she's slow and she's clumsy, but there's no question about it. She's turning. She seems to be heading back towards Norfolk. And there goes the monitor after her, just like a puppy chasing after a field lorry, barking frantically. Yes, the engagement is all but over. The battle is over, and the northern fleet here in Hackenberg is saved. The blockade of the south remains intact. There goes the Roanoke stand, and just listen to that band. It's playing the brand new battle hymn of the Republic, written only a month ago. And to be fair, neither the Merrimack nor the Federal Monitor was defeated, and neither one of them can really claim a clear victory. This great naval battle, which has just been fought so gallantly by the North and the South, is a draw. However, it's an unhappy day for the South, for as long as the Monitor stands here in Hampton Roads, Southern hopes of breaking the Federal blockade with the Merrimack are doomed, and the Monitor is going to stay here. This day, the daughter of the The monitor stops the Merrimack, and the Union fleet is saved. You have been listening to The Monitor and the Merrimack, another broadcast in the series You Are There, produced and directed by Robert Louis Cheon. The Monitor and the Merrimack was written by Irv Tunick and Mr. Cheon. The cast included Anthony Kemble Cooper, Cliff Carpenter, Joseph Boland, Bill Quinn, Patsy Campbell, Court Benson, Jim Davidson, Bert Collin, and others. Next week... July 21st, 1881, the surrender of Sitting Bull. You are there.
CBS Christmas Weekend draws to its end tonight with two fine comedy shows. One of them drawing laughs from a schoolroom and the other from a general store. At 9.30 Eastern Standard Time, our Miss Brooks finds Eve Arden starring as America's most unusual, at least unusually madcap, schoolmistress. And at 10, it's no secret, Lum and Abner, those famous storekeepers, relax with you in the laughter that comes from their famous store, the Jotham Down store, located out in Pine Ridge, Arkansas. Climax your Christmas holiday with comedy in Our Miss Brooks and Lum and Abner tonight over most of these same CBS network stations. This is CBS, where 99 million people gather every week, the Columbia Broadcasting System. So there you go. There's the Merrimack and the Monitor by You Are There. I hope you enjoyed that. I was pretty fascinated by yeah, learning. I you know it never occurred to me. Of course, there would be the considerations of naval battles in the war. Uh, the fact that the North was hemming in the South by having a blockade that stopped them from trading with the British or communicating with other nations that may have stepped in and helped provide supplies or ships of their own or whatever to the battle to help the South win against the Union and how wise they were to have a blockade. As I learned more about the events of this, other than what was just reported in this uh, old-time radio show, the history of the Merrimack and how, you know, when it still belonged to the Union and they were in the Virginia Harbor and war was imminent between the South before the succession of the, of the Confederacy, but they knew it was going to happen. And on that day, they were powering up their engines. They were going to leave Harbor and they were going to escape to the North before war broke out. But somebody had foreseen that they were going to try to do this. And so they, what did they do? They uh, purposefully sunk a bunch of ships so that the Merrimack could not leave the harbor. And then they were stuck and they were overcome. I think they did burn it though. They were successful in burning the ship, but the whole of it was saved. And then it was turned into this I think they renamed it, right, the the Confederate, the CSS Virginia. And they made it, they, you know, put all these this iron on the sides of the ship. And they didn't have sails. They had a motor, that a steam motor that pushed them around. And it looked like this crocodile, like they said. And, man, it's just fascinating. You know, the I think I read, I was looking this up a little bit. I think the British had made some ironclad ships previous to this, you know, the uh, before 19 before 1860 uh, when these events were happening. But as far as the American Navy, this was the first ironclad vessel that was in there. It was interesting to listen to the account where, you know, <laughs> the old Navy guy from the South was like, well, how undignified to fight a battle with an ironclad. Nobody would do this. This is a disgrace. There's art to naval battles and nobody who is a respectable naval officer would ever craft something that is ironclad. 
You know, it, it's unbefitting to, you know, we, we fight in wooden vessels. Well, this was changing things. And it looked like the North was going to be caught unaware. But there was this secret mission to build the Monitor. They had their own ironclad vessel. But it was a little bit different. It wasn't just a, uh, what was it? I think the, what did it say? The Merrimack had like 10 guns on each side. And so they had a lot of firepower when they were fighting against wooden vessels. But this monitor had a rotating turret and its cannon was bigger. And eventually it was enough to hold off the Merrimack so that it was, or I'm sorry, the Virginia so that it wasn't able to keep destroying all these, the, the ships, the Union ships. And they weren't able to block the blockade and they were able to keep the South hemmed in. And eventually, of course, uh, the Union won the war. Um, but man, it, it, that's just, it was kind of fun and exciting to learn about that. I think I had heard about, you know, some of the naval battles and Hampton Roads and things like that previously like back in high school or whatever, but I really wasn't paying as much attention back then. But it's really fascinating to learn about these things. And yeah, so I, I just appreciate history. I appreciate revisiting these things and, and learning new things about history and what really happened and how real this was at the time. And, and you know, things in history, we think, oh, that's in the past, and we take it for granted kind of. But the people that were there, I mean, this was new and novel and scary that, uh, you know, this new technology could pretty much take out all the all the ships of the Union Navy. And they would have been in dire straits if they hadn't come up with some defense for it. You know, the same thing goes for the South. I mean, you know, they were excited and they knew that this this new technology was going to be what won them the war. And they were so excited when uh, they were successful and, and were taking out Union ships, but then the disappointment when they were turned back. And man, it was just a, a crazy time, you know, but we need to pay attention to these things. You know, this, this could happen again. There could be another civil war. There could be more world wars and we need to see what's going on and, and learn from history rather than just repeat what's going on and I'm afraid that we don't do that enough we don't observe history enough and learn from it we just use it to make political points and that kind of stuff uh, anyway I hope you enjoyed this journey back into history back into the Civil War and uh, I'll, I'll bring more of these you are there episodes here occasionally I'm not going to go all in like I did last time and just play it like every other month or every month or whatever but uh um, I hope you enjoyed this, and I will will be back with more of these. Uh, but I'm going to run some other things. October's coming up, so I think I have another episode of uh, Tales from the Crypt to play for you. That'll be fun in October. And, and I'm going to come back with some more James Stewart and the Six Shooter as well coming up. So uh, we'll have some more old-time radio. I, I think I need to play some... Uh, Ray Bradbury. It's been a while since I've played just some Ray Bradbury stories too. So yeah, lots of lots of things that we can talk about here on the Journey Into Podcast with Old Time Radio, as well as with new journeys and uh, coming to you with those. So all right, I'm going to leave you here, uh, but I hope you enjoyed this episode and I'll be back. We'll have more journeys. Until then, kids, stay safe out there, huh?
and journey on. The Journey Into podcast is produced under Creative Commons Attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license, which means that you can feel free to share this episode and this podcast with anybody that you would like. Uh, But don't take credit for it. Don't try to make money off of it. And don't change anything. Just share it as it is and uh, tell people where you got it from and where you heard it first. Uh, The theme music for the Journey Into podcast, as always, is provided by Man in Space.